Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 2. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 12 this morning. My name is Stephen Elliott. I'm the pastor of high school ministries here at Grace Community, and it's a real honor and privilege to be able to um, open up God's Word with you this morning. We're in this series, this four-week series titled American Christianity, and as Tim has been saying, this series is actually, in some ways, talking very little specifically about, about America, other than the simple fact that, that we are Americans and that just by nature, we are shaped by our culture. We are influenced heavily by our culture, by the, by the culture that we live in. And because of that fact, it's, it's important because of the fact that we are just very easily influenced people that it's, it's important that we take time to continually stop and reassess where, we at, where we're at and look at whether or not our culture is somehow and maybe in some ways influencing us incorrectly, influencing the way we look at Scripture, the way what God teaches us, what God tells us to be as followers of Him. It's a very dangerous thing to read the scriptures through the lenses of our culture. Instead, it's important that we assess our culture through the lenses of scripture. And that's what we're attempting to do this morning. And that's what we're attempting to do in this series is make sure that we are evaluating things correctly. Uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Tim talked about how American Christianity says that you can reason your way into heaven. And last week he talked about how American Christianity says that we are saved simply by praying a prayer. Now, next week he's going to talk about how American Christianity is a personal faith that doesn't need others. In other words, it doesn't need involvement in the church. It's something where I can just say, this is my personal relationship with Jesus. I don't need anyone else. And this morning, we're going to look at a claim that says that American Christianity says that love is an emotion that tolerates all. In other words, love is, is simply just a feeling. Love is something that, that is, is important, but it's no more than a feeling. And love tolerates. Love does not uh, step on toes. Love allows other people to live their lives as they choose to live. And I'm going to live my life how I choose to live it. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. And you're not going to tell me what to do. And we're just going to be happy in our own little bubble. I think that this, this is a claim of our culture as a whole. And... That, that love is just complete tolerance of others. And it doesn't judge, it doesn't allow another person, it allows another person to live however they choose. And I think because of it, many in our church see this as tolerance of sin. Many, many in the church see this as, as freedom and allowance to, to live sinful lives. And I think at times we react and we respond by that, by, uh, by saying, no, we don't tolerate sin. We call it like it is. We call people out on their sin. It's not living, it's not loving to simply allow people to continue in what God, call, in what God calls sin. Uh, we, we respond by saying, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to call you out on your sin. That's, that's what true love is. I think it's a, in, if you think of a pendulum, uh, our culture is very much swinging towards tolerance and acceptance of everything and claiming that that's what love is. And I think at times we in the church react the other way and we we take the pendulum maybe in some ways too far by saying no we're gonna we're gonna call sin sin we're gonna call you out on it we're gonna call you sinners and that's that's what love is but i think that 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 is definitely part of love 
there, there is an aspect of that that is loving where we don't allow people to just continue in a sinful lifestyle that God ultimately calls, it says is destructive, that God calls wrong, that God doesn't allow. But I think that there's so much more to it than that. And I think in 1 Thessalonians, Paul really outlines and lays out what true biblical Christian love looks like. Our main point this morning is, I think, a summary of this text, and that is that true love is an investment of your life into the life of another. True love is an investment of your life into the life of another. <clears throat> In other words, sin, love doesn't just sit back and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're a sinner, that's wrong. Love invests one's life into the life of another. Love gives oneself completely over to bringing the other person to maturity in Christ. Hopefully you've got your Bible open now to 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, there is a lot of background to this text that will help make this text very important. And you can read about the full background really in Acts 16 and 17. Uh, it'll really give you a full, a full picture of this story and what Paul is talking about. Everything that we're about to read can be, can be verified in these chapters. <clears throat> but Paul is writing this letter from Corinth. He and Silas brought the gospel to Philippi, the, the region that Thessalonica, the, the city that Paul is writing this letter to, is in, uh, is in the region of Macedonia. And uh, Philippi is one of the uh, prominent cities in that region. And he first brought the gospel to Philippi, established a church there, faced a great deal of persecution there. And after a time, they left and went to Thessalonica. There they again brought the people into a saving faith. They grew them as disciples and formed a community, a church. And there again in Thessalonica, after a very short time, the church faced persecution. They were, people were dragged before, uh, dragged out into, into the streets with riots and um, dragged before judges. And the church there decided that it would be best that Paul and Silas left quickly and quietly, and so they did. So sometime later, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. Remember, this is, the, this is, an earth, this is a very young church. Until Paul, before Paul went there, there was no church. There was nothing established. And so this is a young body of believers and he sends Timothy there to check on them and to see how they're doing, to get an update on their faith. And Timothy returns to Paul with great news that the church has endured, that they haven't fizzled out, that they, that they have continued. They are growing and they are thriving. He does report to, to, to Paul that there are some theological questions and, and as well that there are outsiders who are making some trouble amongst the believers. They are making an active effort to discredit Paul and his message. In this day, con artists, uh, charlatans, frauds, scammers, they were everywhere. It was really common to have people come through and uh, try and scam people, whether it was with a, a fake religion, whether it was with you know, a, a fake product. But they didn't have Snopes.com in this day and age. There wasn't anything, any way to really in a strong, you know, way to discredit some of these people. They would come and go, and, uh, and it, would cause, it would cause havoc. Paul dealt with some of these people in Galatia. He would deal with it again in Corinth, and he's dealing with it here. 
He knows that these people can, can cause trouble in the minds of young believers, and they're trying to discredit Paul. They're trying to claim that his gospel, that his gospel was false, that his gospel that he was preaching was out of self-centered motives. They are doing all these things to, to try and uh, sway these believers, these young believers. We're not sure exactly why they were trying to do it, but they were trying to convince these young, this young church that Paul, Timothy, and Silas, that their gospel was false. Paul knew the danger of these kinds of people. And so he writes as well to deal with that. So he, he writes to encourage them to praise them because they've remained true. He writes to deal with some of their theological issues. And as we're going to see this morning, the background of the text that we're going to look at, he writes to defend his message, the true gospel, against these false accusations and these false accusers. So with that context in mind, let's read this text. Verse 1, chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like nursing, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we not, might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witness and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's defense here teaches us about the nature and true of true, genuine biblical love. Furthermore, it teaches us what our love is to look like. He paints a picture of how we are supposed to be loving the believers around us and how we are ultimately supposed to be loving all people. So what does he teach us about the nature of true and genuine love? If you've got your, if you've got your outline in front of you, I encourage you to pull that out. First of all, he teaches us that we love as a faithful servant who models the faith. We love as a faithful servant who models the faith. In other words, he teaches us that our love has a model. <clears throat> our love has a model. Verses 1 through 6, he describes, he reminds them of his conduct, not just him, but Silas and the other apostles that came to them. He describes how he acted amongst them. He said, clearly, I am not... I am not a phony. I am not out for personal gain. You know this because you know how I acted. You saw how I lived my life around you. 
You see, our love is a lifestyle that's lived out in and among other believers. It's not something that we just keep to ourselves. We have to love and we have to model that love around other people. True love cannot exist in isolation. It exists in a community, and Pastor Tim is going to talk about that a lot more next week. But know that true love exists in a community. It is something that is modeled around other people. If other people cannot see that you are a loving person, something's wrong there. True love has to be seen. I think I'm sensitive to this in some ways because I work with high school students, and I see that one of the greatest needs in a young person's life, a young believer, is godly role models. One of the most important qualifications that we in in youth ministry look for when we look for their small group leaders is, are they a godly role model? We don't, you know, make them teach us a lesson and like evaluate it. Okay, are they, are they a good teacher? We don't say, you know, are they, are they really funny? Uh, are they someone who's really cool and wears cool clothing with bedazzled jewels on the backside of their jeans or something like that? If so, I'd be out. I don't do that. But we say, are they a godly role model? Do they live their faith out in a way that they can be pointed to and as an example to these young believers? I said it several weeks ago on Student Driven Sunday, but the best lessons are caught and not taught. I think this is a great strength of the youth group. I think one of the great strengths of the youth group that's in something that's been around for many years is that a qualification, uh, something that, that a small group leader commits to, is to see their group through the entire time that they're in the ministry. And so when a, a small group leader commits to being a small group leader in, in youth ministry, they don't just sign on for one year. They sign on to see a group through from, if they're in junior high, through seventh and eighth grade. If they're in high school, from freshman year to senior year. It's a, it's a major commitment, but we require that because we know that the best lessons are caught and not taught. True love is modeled. I want you to reflect back with me. Who are some of the most influential people in your life? You can even write some of their names down on your notes. Think about them. Who are some of the most influential people in your life? Think back to some of the times where you experienced the greatest growth through them. Who were those people? What were the circumstances around Um, going on in your life? How old were you? What were they like? What were life life lessons that you learned from them? Chances are, maybe it was a a small group leader, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was just a, a neighbor, or maybe it was a father or a grandfather. Chances are, you probably can't remember the details of maybe every lesson that they taught, but I guarantee you remember how they lived their life. You remember how they acted in difficult times. You, I guarantee you remember watching them and watching how they faced adversity, how they dealt with their family, how they treated other people around them. The greatest lessons that you learned from them were probably lessons that you just observed in their life. Guys, we have to model love. Love has to be modeled. In, verse, in 12 verses, in these 12 verses that we have here, Paul says, you know you remember, you are witness. He says some variation of that six times. Almost every other verse contains some phrase of saying, you know this. In other words, Paul is saying, you saw this in me. People have to see our faith in us. Where are you modeling your faith? Can you say that you are a role model of your faith? Certainly not a perfect one. I remember the people who are influential in my life. They were not perfect. 
I think of myself, I know I am not perfect. I am very much aware of my imperfections, my sin, my failures, my shortcomings. You are too. I don't have to tell you that. But what's the direction? It's not perfection, but direction. What direction are you walking in? Are you modeling your faith? We're pushing needs in children's ministries, not because we need babysitters. Our children need role models who will model this and spend time with them. You see, our love acts. Our love has models. Number two, if you're taking notes, is that we love as a compassionate mother who cares and longs for her children. We love as a compassionate mother who cares and longs for her children. As a compassionate mother who cares and longs for her children. <clears throat> In other words, our love has an emotion. Our love has an emotion. Look at Paul's words here. He's, he's speaking from the heart. Can you sense his his heart in this, that he is writing this, that, that the thought of these young believers that he has poured his life into, the thought that they might be led astray, the thought that they might think that his gospel was fake, was phony, was done out of self, some sort of selfish motives. I can, I can picture him trembling as he's writing this, crying as he's writing this, the thought that, that these young people that he cares so much about would turn away from the truth would turn away uh, from the one true God and his gospel would, I imagine that is breaking his heart. He's saying, as a mother longs and nurtures and nurses and cares for her children, so we cared for you. Many of you are mothers in this room. Being a mother, when, when you talk about being, being a mother, that, that carries an emotion with it. That carries a deep passion and love for, for your child. If we are walking with the Lord, if we are spending time with him, if we are becoming more like him, by nature, we will continue to love passionately, emotionally, those that God loves. This picture that Paul paints instantly communicates the heart and passion that believers are supposed to have for another. Uh, I was hiking Several weeks ago, I went hiking up to, to Pear Lake in the Sequoia National Park. Beautiful, beautiful place. My first time there. If you've never been there, go there. It was awesome. Uh, I was driving along. You can pull up that one. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Um, I was driving along. Before I even got, right as I was about to get to the parking lot, I see this movement off to the side of the road. And it was a lot of movement. It was, it was an animal. And I'm like, oh, that's a bear. That's awesome. So I, so I quickly parked. I pulled off to the side of the road, and I jumped out with my camera. And by that time, the bear had moved down the hill just a little bit. And <laughs> I was going to run around the side of my truck and to try and get a good picture. And then I realized that it was a mama bear with her cub. And I went, oh, maybe I'll stay on this side of the truck where it's safe with the door, door open that I can quickly jump in. You laugh because you know there's nothing more dangerous. Uh, most bears, we just have black bears in California. They're pretty, they're docile. They'll, they'll leave you alone for the most part if you leave them alone, uh, unless you lather yourself up with peanut butter. Um, but a mother bear protecting her cub is a dangerous, dangerous thing. I was talking to Ken. We were looking at this picture earlier in the, in the sound booth. And I said, we were talking about this, and I said, yeah, you know, bears will, m mama bears will, without hesitation, sacrifice themselves for their cub. And he said, actually, they will, more, more than that, they will sacrifice you for their cub. And I'm like, that's actually very true. That's more accurate. But the fact is, thanks guys, you can, you can take that down. The, the fact is, is that 
mother bears have a deep emotional connection for their cubs. They love the, their cubs so much that they will without hesitation react if they think that their cub is in any way in danger. They don't react, they don't attack because they feel a personal threat. They react because they feel a threat to their cubs. Folks, do we have that kind of love, that kind of self-sacrificing, deep, heartfelt love for those around us? Is it just kind of like, oh yeah, those people that I go to church with, you know, those people I sit next to, those people driving down the street. Is, do we just see them as those people? Or do we have a deep, heartfelt love? Do we hurt physically? Do we have an emotional pain an, where our heart aches for those people? Jesus modeled this more than any other. Obviously, he was Jesus. There is times that picture, uh, there is times in the gospel where it paints a picture of Jesus and he's, he's been serving all day long. He's been ministering to people and there's times where it says he was just exhausted. He, wants to get, he wanted to get away by himself. But it says he looked out at the crowds that were following him. It says he had compassion for them and he met their needs. That kind of love, this kind of love that we are called to give towards people is not self-serving. It is self-sacrificing. There is more to love than just an emotional feeling, certainly. But Paul does not overlook the emotional feeling of love, and neither should we. Are we serving just out of compulsion or habit? We have to be like Christ. Our hearts must long to bring others into a relationship with Christ. We must ache with love for them. If we don't, something might be wrong. How do you view people of another race? How do you view people of another political party? People who act, who culturally act very, very different than you, that maybe don't listen to the same music that you listen to. People who are sinners, who act like sinners, who are lost, and they need the Lord. How do you see them? Do we just, do we look down on contempt with those people? Do we see them as those people? Or do we hurt for them? Do we desire, like Paul, to bring them into a relationship with God? Finally, we love as a concerned father who brings his children up to maturity. We love as a concerned father who brings his children up to maturity. In verses 9 through 12, Paul, Paul paints this picture of a father. He says, you know how we acted like a, like a father. We desired to, to nurture you, to grow you, to bring you up into maturity with Christ. In other words, our love has a goal. Our love has a goal, a purpose in mind. We don't love just to love, just to be nice people. We have a reason for it. We have a purpose. We have a goal in mind. And that goal is to bring them up into maturity in Christ. Paul says that the final reason that, he, that they can trust the legitimacy of his ministry and message was because he genuinely desired that they grow and mature in their faith, that they walk in a way that honors God. He's saying, you matter. You my purpose is you. You see, con artists, you know, scammers, people are just a means to an end. People are a way to get a buck. People are a way to gain power or popularity. These scammers, they didn't care. They didn't truly care about people. They didn't care about them. They were just a means to an end. But with Paul as it should be with us. People are the goal. People are the end. 
Our goal is developing people, developing and walking with them as they walk and become more and more like Christ. The goal is people. I think a great danger of our culture, something that has really seeped into our church, is this idea of self-sufficiency. I think it's really corrupted our call to community. The idea, and this is a very, this is a very American idea, that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we don't need anybody. It's just me and my grit and my toughness and the, you know, blood through blood, sweat, and tears. I can make it on my own. I'm a self-made man. We look at that in our culture and we praise that. But that is a dangerous thing in our, in, our cult, in our community of believers. That is a dangerous mindset to have as a follower of Christ. That is not a biblical concept. That is not an attitude that Christians are to, ha- are to have. We need to be aware of that. We need to be in it with people. We need to be with people and for people. This picture that Paul paints is of a father patiently and lovingly and faithfully teaching and training and working with his child with the goal and the desire to build them up into maturity. You dads in the room, how many hours did you spend with your children, or are you, maybe you, you, you fathers of younger children, how many hours are you spending growing your children, teaching them the basics of life? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a hobby. You know, maybe you love to build something and you are teaching them the basics of how you hold a hammer, how you drive a nail. Maybe it's a sport. You teach them the basics, shot after shot. of This is how you shoot a basketball. This is how you hit a ball. This is how you kick a soccer ball. This is what you do. You spend hours diligently, faithfully. You don't say, all right, kid, listen, boom, kick it like that. See that? Boom. Now, all right, don't bug me while I watch TV. Maybe, maybe that is you. If so, you need to work on that. <laughs> But a faithful father is one who is faithful with his children and has a goal. A faithful father is one that doesn't just say, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep you alive, kid. I'm gonna you know, feed you and clothe you and pass that, don't bug me. But a faithful father is one who desires to grow their children up into a, into a thriving adult who is, who is self-sufficient. Some of you older fathers, maybe you know, maybe you taught your child a hobby and maybe you taught them a little too well and now they're at a point where they're better than you and maybe they're teaching you things and helping you work on things. That's what Paul is desiring to do. He's trying, he's trying to say, I'm gonna, I want to grow you to a point to where you can grow and feed yourself. Believers, we have to have a goal in mind as we love and serve others. Our love isn't just an emotional feeling. We need to be invested in people. We need to be with people, and we need to be for them. Who are you doing this with in your faith? Where are you lovingly, and patiently and patiently and diligently mentoring and modeling your faith with others. If there's a place where you're doing that, great. My warning to you is don't let that just become a habit. I, I do that. I have to catch myself with this over and over. You might think, oh, Stephen, you're a, you're a pastor. You never were, you know, deal with this. Baloney. I, this is a struggle for me because I, I get, like you, I get in a rut. I can get to where this is just a, this is just a habit. I just, this is my job. I show up at work. I do, I do my job. I do what I have to do, and I go home. But believers, we are called to be with people. We are called to be for them. We are called to mentor them, to have a purpose in mind, to have a desire, to have a goal in mind. 
And I think that this is where we have room to call out other people in their sin, to call out believers in their sin. This is where I think we don't tolerate sin. Where there is sin present in the life of a believer, we have to call that out. We have to deal with that. That is a loving thing. But there's a relationship behind it. There is love behind it. There's an emotion behind it. And there is a purpose behind it. It is so that they can become more like Christ, so that they can walk and ultimately grow in maturity with Him. And we do it lovingly and carefully. We don't just say, hey, you dirty sinner, this is what you're doing. You either shape up or get out of here. No, we walk with people in their sin. We try and grow them because we're aware that we that people, that people are doing that with us as well. And that's how the Lord deals with sin in our life. He's not like, oh, <laughs> you've messed up. Boom. No, he does it faithfully, patiently, diligently, like a father who cares for his children. Our love is very, very different than the world's love. This morning we're going to um, observe communion this love is different than what our culture says it is. You see, Jesus said that there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your neighbor. This love is, is not often modeled in society. Uh, we, don't, we don't see this kind of love in society. Again, we see a love that's very emotional, very, uh, very hands-off, very much, I don't want to get involved. Like, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. We just won't worry about it. Or, you know, oh, I just, I just love you so much. And it's just strictly very surface, very surfacey. But the love that is modeled by Jesus Christ was ultimately modeled on the cross. This love has a purpose. This love has a goal. When Jesus went to the cross, it was so that he could take our place. So that he could experience the full wrath of the Father on himself so that we wouldn't have to. So that we could enter into a relationship with the Father. So that we could know him. So that we could be free from sin. And this bread and cup, what we are called to do, is something that we are called to do regularly. It is a reminder that we are called to. We are so forgetful, aren't we? We forget so often. There are so many things in Scripture that we are called to remember. Remember, remember, remember. Because we forget. And nothing, there is nothing greater that we are called to remember than the bread and the cup. The fact that he took our place, took the fullness of God's wrath for sin on himself. We are called, and that's modeled in communion. That is illustrated in communion. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we are only able to love because you first loved us. God, as we are called to, to love others truly, compassionately, fully, Lord, we can only do that in your strength and in your ability. Help us to do that this morning, Lord. Help us to be aware of those people, those places where we are called to love more faithfully, to love more like you. Give us the strength to do that. God, now as we focus on the bread and the cup, the illustration of your sacrifice, your death on the cross, God, reveal sin in our life. If there is sin, help us to deal with that. Help us to get right with you. God, thank you for the cross that makes it even possible that we can come before you this morning free of sin, completely guilt-free. Lord, we love you. And pray this in your name. Amen.